space is now open for business. Take me Welcome to the seventh episode of Space Ventures Radio, the podcast that takes a close look at the products, teams, and business models behind today's most exciting space ventures. My name's Raleigh Warner, and I'll be your host. Companies from Blue Origin to United Launch Alliance have publicly stated their vision of a future where manufacturing in space represents a thriving economy. But while some companies are talking about the future, a California-based startup called Made in Space is making it happen right now, developing gravity-independent additive manufacturing technology for use in off-world environments. In a sentence, they're the front-runner in the space manufacturing sector. So if you're interested in hearing how Made in Space is already proving that space manufacturing not only is possible, but also has a viable business model to support it, stay tuned. All right, here's how this episode is going to work. I'm going to start with a 7 to 10 minute overview of the company, essentially covering the key points you'd find in a pitch deck to investors. I'll be using Guy Kawasaki's 10 slide pitch deck template as the framework to structure the episode. I'll be covering Made in Space's solution and opportunity, the value propositions, the quote unquote underlying magic, the business model, the go to market plan, competitive analysis, market opportunity, management team, and key accomplishments to date. Then I'm going to go more in-depth into the company's business model for about 15 minutes, and I'm going to be using something called a business model canvas as the structure. My goal here with the whole episode is really to analyze the business case for Made in Space. And if I can offer a synopsis up front, I am convinced, after doing the research on this company, that Made in Space is on track to achieve the right mix of innovative product, disruptive business model, huge market demand, and go-to-market plan. That's the combination that makes truly successful and inspiring companies. So let's jump in and take a look at Made in Space. All right, what solution is Made in Space providing? Made in Space is currently pursuing a couple opportunities here. The first is solving the quote-unquote spare parts problem, and let's use the International Space Station as context to define this issue. NASA has spent about $1.2 billion on spare parts for the ISS, sent up as cargo in the event that a tool or part breaks. Now, Made in Space is proposing a solution to this problem in the form of 3D printing technology that can work in microgravity. This would limit or completely eliminate the need for these types of single-use spare parts. The product Made in Space has developed to provide this solution is the Additive Manufacturing Facility, or AMF. The AMF is a gravity-independent 3D printer that can manufacture large and complex objects quickly, precisely, and with multiple aerospace-grade materials. Another opportunity that Made in Space is taking on is a potentially lucrative one, the challenge of manufacturing goods off-world for use back on Earth. 
Now, this may sound a bit absurd in the abstract, but the relevant example is Z-Blan optical fiber, a high-value-to-mass glass optical fiber that delivers far superior performance to terrestrially made fiber. I'll explain in more detail in just a moment. Now, the product that Made in Space is developing to provide this solution is the Made in Space Fiber, a microgravity-optimized miniature fiber drawing system. So what are the value propositions? The value propositions for parts manufacturing in orbit for use in orbit, which the AMF does, is eliminating the need to launch new parts into space, which is both costly and takes a long time. Made in Space is offering a cheap, instant way to print any part or tool in orbit or off-world. The value proposition of made-in-space fiber is quality of product. Emily Calandrelli of TechCrunch has a great synopsis of the issue with Z-Bland fiber made on Earth. Quote, terrestrially produced fiber grown under the effects of gravity suffers from certain glass impurities and microcrystal formations. These impurities contribute to scattering and absorption loss and reduce the overall quality of the fiber. This can result in signal degradation and becomes especially problematic when transmitting data across long distances. End quote. So drawing the fiber in microgravity removes all those impurities, making a far superior and more reliable end product. So what's the company's underlying magic? I'd say Made in Space has spent the last six years laser-focused on understanding what it takes to enable manufacturing in microgravity environments. That's a substantial amount of institutional knowledge, and I would imagine intellectual property, that creates a distinct competitive advantage. So much of the attention around becoming an interplanetary species is focused on transportation and colonization. Made in Space seems to be the only company whose sole focus is how to set up and scale the manufacturing operations necessary to build structures in low-gravity environments like the Moon, Mars, or even in cislunar space. So what's the company's business model? I'll give some very broad strokes now, but we'll be diving deep into this topic later on using the business model canvas approach. To offer a preview, Made in Space makes microgravity-capable 3D printing equipment that can service both off-world and Earth-based applications. End-users range from astronauts on the International Space Station to medical device companies. The company earns revenue by charging either for equipment usage in orbit or off-world, or for finished products shipped back to Earth from space. Now that's the super high level, again, much more detail to come. Let's talk about the company's go-to-market plan. Now, strategic partnerships are a critical part of the company's go-to-market plan now and will continue to be in the future. The two major partners the company has scored are NASA and Lowe's. I'll talk more about those in the accomplishments section coming up soon. Made in Space has also partnered with Thor Labs, an optical fiber and laser company. Together, they'll produce test quantities of microgravity-grown fiber on the ISS and run further tests on the product once it's returned to Earth. For products that will be manufactured off-world and shipped back to Earth for sale and use, I imagine the conversations are in early stages right now with companies in the telecom industry who are looking for superior fiber optic material. By establishing relationships now and getting an idea of what terms different customers might be comfortable with, Made in Space will be able to better tailor their future products as well as more accurately assess the true commercial opportunity there. Now let's talk about the competition. Right now, Made in Space is the clear leader in the space manufacturing sector. 
There's some activity bubbling up in the pharmaceutical therapeutic industry, like Astrogenetics, which is the, quote, first commercial biotechnology company to use the unique microgravity environment of space to develop novel therapeutic products. But in terms of true manufacturing, creating newly designed parts, tools, and components while already in space, Made in Space takes the cake. This is a little speculative here, but Blue Origin could be Made in Space's most daunting competition, either now or in the future. You know, Jeff Bezos outlined his vision for moving heavy industry into space. He argued that energy is much more readily available in space and that Earth should basically be rezoned for residential and light industry. And if you combine those sentiments with Blue Origin's stated vision of millions of people living and working in space, and one could make the assumption that Blue Origin is seeking to build and operate large-scale manufacturing capabilities in space. As such, although Blue Origin has no outwardly visible space manufacturing projects, it's possible they're exploring space manufacturing technologies now. However, considering Made in Space's laser focus on microgravity manufacturing, compared with Blue Origin's multiple business units from space tourism to heavy launch vehicles, it likely makes more sense to anticipate a future partnership between Made in Space and Blue Origin rather than outright competition. So let's talk about market opportunity. You know, space manufacturing is still very much a new field with unproven technologies, techniques, and applications even. Ultimately, that's a recipe for an uncertain market, and as such, commercial activity is still very light in the space manufacturing sector. You know, beyond the challenge of developing manufacturing processes that work in microgravity environments, one massive constraint on the sector is testing facilities and customers. For example, there are only two space stations in low Earth orbit with people living on them, the International Space Station and China's Tiangong-2. So for a 3D printing product like the AMF, the customer base is very small right now. And Made in Space has already won the ISS business. One of their machines is on the International Space Station right now. Manufacturing products in space for off-world use will likely remain a small commercial opportunity until real off-world colonization and exploration begins, whether it be on the moon, Mars, or in cislunar space. Luckily for Made in Space, some are projecting fairly strong growth in the population of people living in space in the not-so-distant future. For instance, United Launch Alliance's Cislunar 1000 vision predicts an in-space population of 300 people in just 15 years, and up to 1,000 people in 30 years. Sounds like a growing customer base to me. Now, manufacturing products off-world for re-entry and sale back on Earth could be a different story. If and when Made in Space sees success with its Z-Blan project, new entrants will certainly enter the space manufacturing sector, seeing as Z-Blan Fiber is a $2.5 billion commercial opportunity, according to a report on NASA's website. All right, let's talk about the management team, and we're going to start with Andrew Rush, who's the CEO. He oversees the operations, business development, and strategy for the company. Prior to joining Made in Space, Andrew was actually an intellectual property attorney, and he was one of the few IP lawyers with established industry specializations in aerospace and additive manufacturing. In a legally nascent market like space manufacturing, it makes sense to have a JD at the helm. Jason Dunn is the chief technology officer and one of the co-founders of Made in Space. Jason has not one, but two degrees in aerospace engineering. And considering the pioneering engineering work Made in Space needs to do, Dunn definitely makes the grade to lead technology development for this company. 
And the third pillar of the management team is Mike Snyder, who's the director of research and development and a lead engineer at Made in Space. He's designed or participated in the developmental testing and flight verification for six payloads to the International Space Station. And he's published over a dozen technical papers and presented concepts for advanced space and Earth systems to international audiences. So that's the management team, and we're going to round out this first section of the episode with major accomplishments to date. I'll highlight three key accomplishments in Maiden Space's history, which will help illustrate the company's ability to both develop novel technologies and bring them to market. Maiden Space's first major accomplishment was their additive manufacturing facility on the ISS. The project was part of the NASA-funded 3D printing in zero-G technology demonstration, which is setting out to characterize the performance and demonstrate the functions of additive manufacturing in orbit. Another major milestone was with NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate, which announced its selection of the Maiden Space Project proposal designated Arconaut. Arconaut is designed to develop the necessary technologies and subsystems which will enable the first additive manufacturing, aggregation, and assembly of large and complex systems in space without astronaut extravehicular activity. Basically, it's machines making really big, awesome stuff without any human help in space. That's wild. Another major accomplishment is a key partnership with Lowe's Innovation Labs. Lowe's has partnered to help with the development and distribution of Maiden Space's AMF product, which currently sits on board the International Space Station, with Lowe's branding, of course, and is helping to develop Maiden Space's material recycler called Redo, a tool that can upcycle plastic waste into 3D printer feedstock. Now let's transition into a more in-depth look at the company's business model. All right, so again, we're using something called a business model canvas, and it's essentially just a tool for visualizing the nine key components of a company's business model. I'll start by quickly describing how the business model canvas works and is structured. The right side of the canvas represents everything about a company that the customer interacts with. It encompasses value propositions, customer segments, customer relationships, channels, and revenue streams. The left side of the canvas is everything that happens behind the scenes to enable that exchange of value to happen. This area of the canvas covers key activities, key resources, key partners, and cost structure. And that's the architecture of the business model canvas. So let's jump in. I'll focus the business model conversation around Made in Space's current product, their AMF, and their upcoming product, Made in Space Fiber, which will undergo its first field test on the ISS in Q1 of 2017. Now let's talk about what value propositions these products offer and then flow into the other eight components of the model. A major value proposition of the AMF is spare parts savings. Obviating the need to pre-ship tools and parts that space crews may or may not need represents a ton of value. All the room those parts would have taken up on a launch vehicle can be dedicated to other essential materials. Also, for longer space missions, like a voyage to Mars, where every gram of weight needs to serve a critical function, there's just no room for spare parts. So a product like the AMF is not just a valuable product, it's a necessary one. The primary value proposition of the fiber product is superior infrared transmittance, stemming from the higher quality of glass in the optical fiber. This higher quality would improve both the response time and the throughput advantage compared to traditional optical fiber currently in use for telecommunications. 
Now, I'll briefly mention two additional value propositions that could be part of the company's business model in the future as their pipeline technologies are developed and commercialized. First, offering, quote, unlaunchable structure assembly through the Arcanaut project that I mentioned earlier would be a value proposition in and of itself, offering commercial and civil customers the ability to construct and use equipment in orbit that would be impossibly large and expensive to launch from Earth. Also, access to IP could be a value proposition if it made sense to add licensing of their technologies as a revenue stream. I can see a variety of customer segments being interested in establishing their own manufacturing operations in space, but not wanting to invest the years of R&D to come up with the technologies themselves. Now let's talk about Made in Space's customer segments. For fiber, the primary customer segments will be telecom, medical device, and aerospace companies. These are the sectors that would benefit the most from higher quality optical fiber. For the AMF product, private companies involved in space transportation, exploration, and colonization will be eager customers. The economics and logistics of trying to ship all the parts and backup supplies necessary to furnish even a small colony on the moon or Mars just don't work out. In-situ manufacturing will be a necessity for these operations, which makes Made in Space's AMF product very attractive. Another customer for the AMF product is space agencies with similar space exploration and off-world settlement aspirations. Now let's talk about what kind of relationships Made in Space will want to establish with their customers to ensure a proper exchange of value is created. In my estimation, a key relationship Made in Space will need to set up is contract flexibility. For example, if something happens like a resupply mission to the ISS fails, which could destroy the opportunity to collect Made in Space product from the ISS and deliver it back to Earth, Made in Space needs to be insulated from risk of customers leaving. Another key relationship could be clear feedstock forecasting, meaning Made in Space will need to have accurate projections from their customers about the quantity of feedstock they'll need. This is due to the fact that Made in Space will only have a few windows of opportunity to deliver feedstock to customers. Now, this would be in the context of Made in Space agreeing to handle feedstock delivery. If that was something they chose to do, they basically wouldn't want customers to be in a situation where they ran out of vital feedstock. Now, let's examine how Made in Space will connect with its customer segments to earn their business. First and foremost, if and when Made in Space Fiber becomes a proven high-value product, the company will need a sales and marketing team to source deals with telecom, medical device, and aerospace companies. A great channel that Made in Space has already tapped to connect with NASA is through different project-based grant awards, like the Space Technology Mission Directorate. There are also small business innovation research and space technology transfer opportunities, which the company could use to support and fund pipeline projects that have low technology readiness levels. And another critical channel will be business development. Made in Space is creating and participating in a very complex market. Partnerships both for technology development and product distribution, like the partnership that they've established with Lowe's Innovation Labs, will continue to be essential to support their growth. Now let's talk about money. How will Made in Space make it? Made in Space fiber will likely be sold much like terrestrial optical fiber is today, through cut-and-dry product sales. Obviously, their product will come at a premium because of the substantially improved quality of the product, which will help to recoup the higher value stream costs of shipping product from orbit back to Earth. Next up, pay-per-use fees. This is likely to be a big driver of revenue for the company as more and more companies get interested in manufacturing in low-gravity environments. 
Let's just imagine that SpaceX does start building a colony on Mars in the next 10 to 20 years. They might put in an order for a few dozen AMF machines, which Made in Space would own but would charge for SpaceX to use. That's exactly the arrangement Made in Space has with the ISS right now. Basically, Made in Space owns the machine while NASA pays to use it as a service. This arrangement would create a nice recurring revenue stream. And the more activity in space colonization, the more revenue-generating assets Made in Space can distribute. And another approach, which I mentioned earlier, could be licensing the technology. In the SpaceX example, it might be more cost-effective for SpaceX to pay to be able to build their own AMFs, since they likely can achieve economies of scope from their broad manufacturing capabilities, but would still create a good revenue stream for Made in Space. So that's the right side of the business model canvas, representing everything that the customers interact with. Now let's examine the left side of the canvas, the stuff that happens in the background to enable this exchange of value to happen. And let's start with the key activities that Made in Space needs to continue being great at to make the model work. The first critical activity I'll mention is partnership development, specifically with companies and organizations who regularly access space and would be willing to bring Made in Space technology into orbit. I don't imagine Made in Space's business model will be able to support launch costs for heavy equipment at any time in the near future, barring a substantial fundraising event, which means that they'll need to continue relying on partners like NASA. Next, research and development. Made in Space is doing a fantastic job with this, but they'll want to maintain their position as a company that's years ahead of the curve if they can. That will take consistent investment in R&D to continue innovating and moving pipeline technologies from concept to prototype and beyond. Next, patents. Made in Space has built up an incredible amount of proprietary knowledge around zero-G manufacturing. They'll want to protect that intellectual property as much as possible. I'm guessing it may not be a coincidence that Made in Space's current president and CEO is a JD. I imagine having someone at the helm who has intimate knowledge about how to keep as many of the trade secrets about gravity-independent additive manufacturing in-house is fairly crucial to the company's longevity. And finally, fundraising. You know, upon reflection, a better term here would actually be financing, since fundraising implies shopping for equity investments. In theory, the company could survive on grants and loans, but the real point I want to make here is that it's a fairly large team of engineers at this company building some very non-trivial products, and all of that costs a lot of money. Now let's talk about the key resources that Made in Space will need to maintain to make the model work. First and foremost, engineering talent. When you're trying to build stuff that hasn't been built, you need really smart, really passionate engineers. Next, intellectual property. I mentioned this earlier, talking about patent filing as a key activity, but protecting their IP will help the company maintain its position as the leader in space manufacturing technologies and services. Also, in-orbit equipment and assets, just like the AMF currently on the ISS. That's a huge competitive advantage over new entrants who would need to forge partnerships or raise the funds necessary to launch assets into space. With each additional manufacturing facility that Made in Space puts into orbit before new entrants arrive, Made in Space creates that much more distance between them and the competition. Now let's talk about key partners. Space transportation partnerships. This is essentially what I mentioned in the partnership development key activity. The more opportunities Made in Space has to bring equipment and products into space and test them on someone else's dime, the more money they can invest in R&D and recruitment. And investors. 
If indeed Made in Space needs to raise money from institutional investors to keep the lights on, they'll need forward-thinking investors who are willing to accept longer-term risk since the market opportunity is still being assessed and proven. Now on to the final section of the canvas, cost structure. The first major cost center for the company is payroll. Since lots of talented engineers are a key resource for the company, Made in Space will need to be able to compensate them for the awesome work they do. Next, asset development. Making 3D printer prototypes and finished products isn't cheap. First, there's the inputs of the fabrication machines themselves, the parts and components. Then there's the testing process, which happens in the closest analog to space that we have on Earth, parabolic flights, where supercharged jumbo jets go into controlled freefall for about 20 seconds at a time to simulate zero G. Those flights aren't cheap, and even if Maiden Space has been able to have someone else foot the bill for the time being, that won't last forever. And lastly, the launch and re-entry of equipment and goods is a cost center. Again, this may not be a major cost center right now, while Maiden Space has early stage partnerships with NASA to help prove the technology and advance the important science of low gravity manufacturing, but eventually Maiden Space will be in a position where they need to launch some material on their own, as well as bring it back to ship products like fiber back to Earth. So there you have it. From the information that's available about Made in Space publicly, this canvas is a look at what the company's business model will look like. Now, let's take a look at what's ahead for Made in Space. The Made in Space fiber product will arrive at the International Space Station in the first quarter of 2017, and the company will use their new manufacturing facility to produce at least 100 meters of optical fiber. If results are promising, Maiden Space is prepared to develop larger-scale optical fiber production facilities in space. Beyond that, it's actually hard to project exact timelines, but what's important is that the company has a number of exciting projects in their pipeline, which they refer to as MIS Labs. Two of the most exciting projects, in my opinion, are the Extended Structure Additive Manufacturing Machine, or ESAM, where they're building devices that can produce struts and beams of indefinite length. And then there's Arconaut, which I referenced earlier in the accomplishments section. The full vision of Arconaut is to create spacecraft which manufacture and assemble unlaunchable structures once on orbit, enabling new mission capabilities such as large antennas and base stations. I'm going to wax poetic for a second here, but I really think this kind of work is exactly why the space industry is so important and exciting. So just a major hats off to Made in Space. And to wrap up the episode, I'm going to talk about some concerns about the business model's viability. I'll make some recommendations on what they can do to de-risk the company, as well as discuss what KPIs or key performance indicators will help inform how well the company is doing. These will be the metrics to watch in the months and years ahead. I'll emphasize that I'm in no way privy to internal metrics or financials, so I'm just making inferences based on what I can gather about the company as a member of the public. So one concern uh, is cash on hand. As far as I'm aware, the company's only revenue stream beyond grant awards is charging when astronauts on the ISS use their AMF product. And although the Maiden Space Fiber product could be very lucrative if initial tests go well, I can't imagine that they have enough data or firm enough lead time estimates to lock up pre-orders from potential customers. At the same time, Maiden Space has an ambitious technology pipeline and around 30 team members on the payroll, so I imagine the company's burn rate is probably pretty steep, and I can't imagine that their current revenue covers that burn rate. Again, there's a lot of assumptions here. And another concern is the company's value stream. 
And by value stream, I'm referring to the process and the time it takes to go from inputs to finished product delivered to a customer. So let's say made in space fiber is a proven technology. That's awesome. However, there are two major constraints to getting finished product to the customer, limited delivery opportunities and cargo limitations. First, limited delivery opportunities. There are only so many return missions from the ISS back to Earth in a given year. And when they do come back, there's a limit on how much cargo, their down mass, they can bring back. Much of the space is reserved for science experiments conducted on the space station. So what would my recommendations be? My recommendation for the cash on hand concern would be to start talking with VCs now with the goal of closing around at the end of Q1 or Q2 2017. If indeed Zbland could be a $2.5 billion market for Made in Space, and assuming their tests are a success in early 2017, the company could argue that it's positioned to be the sole provider of high-quality optical fiber products for at least a few years. That opportunity alone could be compelling for VCs, not even considering the respective market opportunities of their R&D projects. I'd emphasize how a cash infusion could be used to accelerate production and fulfillment of customer orders. Also, I think VCs could have a lot to get excited about in terms of future revenue or liquidity events. You know, if Blue Origin really wants to pursue its vision of millions of people living and working in space, there could be an enormous licensing, partnership, or even an acquisition opportunity for Made in Space. Now, with limited information, I'll be honest that I don't have a good recommendation for the value stream concern right now. My best guess would be to explore how much it would cost to reserve more space on resupply missions, like on SpaceX's Dragon Capsule, to bring back payload from the ISS. That may be a necessary cost to incur as a part of the business model, which would obviously be reflected in higher costs for the end user. So what are the company's KPIs? Again, assuming success with the Made in Space Fiber product, I think revenue growth rate could be a super compelling metric for this company. Since they'd have virtually no competition in producing Zblan, and assuming the product yields superior performance to competitor products, I believe the company could not only make a lot of money, but also see their revenue intake accelerate in at least the first 12 to 18 months of selling fiber. And that's it for this episode of Space Ventures Radio, the podcast that digs deep into new space ventures. I have to say that this was a particularly fun company to dig into, and I'll definitely be following this one closely and wish the whole team at Made in Space the best of luck. I'm Raleigh Werner, and it's been awesome sharing this exciting company with you. If you'd like to learn more about Made in Space, definitely visit their website, madeinspace.us. And you can stay updated on the latest with Space Ventures Radio on the website, spaceventuresradio.com, or on Twitter, the handle is at New Space Radio. Thanks for listening, and have an awesome day. Take me high.